Welcome to the podcast for Great Figures of the New Testament, a Sunday school class offered at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I'm the Stembler Scholar, and will be the host of these lectures. In the first week of our series, we focused on Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in this week, we turn to another familiar and prominent chapter from the pages of the New Testament, John the Baptist. On August 4, 2010, a team of archaeologists discovered small fragments of a skull, jaw, and a tooth, and a right-hand knuckle bone embedded in a stone urn in an ancient monastery in Bulgaria. On the stone urn was a Greek inscription that contains a reference to June 24th, the date on which John the Baptist is supposedly to have been born. The natural question of this find was, were these actually the bones of John the Baptist? Carbon dating revealed that these bone fragments were almost 2,000 years old, putting it at just about the right time for John the Baptist. In addition, many countries from around the Mediterranean world, including Greece, Turkey, Italy, and Egypt, claim to have found relics of John the Baptist. Interestingly enough, most of these churches claim to have John's right hand, that is, the hand he used to baptize Jesus in the Jordan. Now, whether or not these bones are actually from John the Baptist or from someone, some other man from the first century CE is impossible to determine. But what claims like this indicate is that the story of John the Baptist continues to be a powerful one for Christians throughout the, the whole world. In both Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches to this day, June the 24th is a feast day for the, for the Nativity of John the Baptist, and it's one of the oldest feast days recognized in church history. John is a particularly important figure in Eastern Orthodox churches. No fewer than six separate days in the calendar year are set aside to honor and remember John the Baptist and his ministry as a forerunner to Christ. John, though, is, some, is something of an odd figure. He is an ascetic. He wanders in the Judean wilderness. And uh, there's some suggestion that he might have been alienated from mainstream culture and certainly from mainline Jewish aristocracy. John the Baptist was a revivalist who proclaimed a message of repentance, and he baptized people in the Jordan for the forgiveness of their sins. He, over time, John came to receive the title Ha Baptizon in Greek, which means literally the immerser or the dipper or one who plunged in water. He did so for the purpose of renewing or establishing for the first time a relationship between an individual and God. And yet, while these aspects of the story of John the Baptist are familiar to most of us, we don't always have a clear sense of the full trajectory of his story in the pages of the New Testament, nor the ways in which the legend of John the Baptist grows in the early church. Let's turn now to those matters. First, let's look at stories concerning John's birth. His birth narrative is captured only in one of the four Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke, as a good Presbyterian, sets out to write an orderly account of the events fulfilled among us. And to begin his story, he, he goes further back in time, before the birth of Jesus, to tell the story of John the Baptist and his parents. 
and the story goes like this. In the days of King Herod Antipas, there was a priest in the temple of Jerusalem named Zechariah. He and his wife, Elizabeth, were both said to be righteous people of God, living blamelessly according to the law. But Zechariah and Elizabeth had one important problem. They were getting along in years, and they were barren. Now, when the Bible mentions a righteous couple uh, who is getting along in years and cannot have a child, you know that you are dealing with a typical story or a typical genre about a barren couple. And we know a similar story exists in the pages of the Old Testament. This, after all, is the story of Abraham and Sarah, and then later Isaac and Rebekah, and even after that, Elkanah and Hannah. When you encounter this type of story and you've read it before, you know where it's headed in its first line. This elderly couple who is barren will eventually have a child, and that child will play a significant role in God's purposes in the world. And that, of course, is exactly the case for Zechariah and Elizabeth. The story goes like this, picking up in Luke chapter 1, verse 13. Gabriel is, uh, excuse me, Zechariah is praying in the temple when he is visited by the angel Gabriel. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. The promise here that the child would not drink wine or strong drink harkens back to number six, where a particular vow is described, and it's called the Nazarite vow. Nazir in Hebrew uh, has essentially a meaning, essentially means to withdraw from common practices or to be set apart to and for God's purposes. Now, in Numbers 6, there's three requirements of this vow. One is to stay away from wine or strong drink, which is, of course, mentioned in Luke 1. But there are two other facets. One is to not cut your hair, uh, and the other is to not go near a corpse. These two other aspects of the Nazarite vow are not mentioned in Luke 1, although, as we'll see in just a moment, there is a long tradition of John being a particularly hairy man, and which might suggest that he also was following the aspect of the Nazarite vow that did not allow one to cut one's hair. In either case, John here is portrayed in this Annunciation moment as a leader of spiritual renewal, We'll pick up in Luke 1.16. The angel continues, He will turn many of the people of Israel to their Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. One of the key words here in this passage Uh, is translated in the English as turn, as in, he will turn many of the people of Israel to their God. In Greek, this word for term can be used in an everyday sense and in a physical sense of turning around or turning to and fro, but in a spiritual sense, it's also the language of conversion. Here we have insight into the uh, John's future as something of a spiritual revivalist, as someone who will begin to convert or turn people's heart to their God in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, in the story of this Annunciation to 
uh, of John to Zechariah, uh, the father, Zechariah, understandably has some doubts. After all, what he is experiencing in the temple is something miraculous, and for him, of course, unprecedented. Listen to how Zechariah responds in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Here again, there's a few details to note in this short passage. One uh, is the fact that Gabriel says that he is speaking to Zechariah and bringing you this good news. Well, the Greek word for good news here, euangelion, is typically translated as gospel. It's the word from which we derive the English uh, evangelical or evangelist. Thus, in this passage then, Gabriel is portrayed as the first evangelist of the church, speaking God's good news to Zechariah about what would come true through his son and then later through the person of Jesus Christ. We also note here that Zechariah is punished in some degree for not immediately believing Gabriel's message. In this text, we find out that uh, Zechariah will be rendered mute until uh, just after the birth of John. And because of this, a funny scene ensues after the angel has departed. Gabriel comes out of the temple, and people ask uh, why he was delayed in there for so long. But of course, since he's mute, he cannot explain to them. So he has to resort to hand motions uh, to describe what has happened. Now, how one expresses that the, game, that the angel Gabriel had visited them and promised that the elderly couple would conceive and bear a son using sign language alone is something I do not understand, and perhaps it is that Gabriel's audience did not understand either. They might well have thought that Gabriel had lost his mind or was seeing visions of some strange sort. The other thing to note about this passage, going back up to verse 16, or excuse me, verse 17, is that there's a reference to Elijah, that John, this this boy to be conceived and to be a forerunner to Christ would come with the spirit and power of Elijah. In fact, we learned from later parts of the New Testament that some actually come to understand John the Baptist as an Elijah-like figure, or maybe even as Elijah himself. Now, what's the connection here intended between John and the Old Testament prophet Elijah? Well, one point of connection is simply their physical appearance. In Mark 1.6, John the Baptist is described. Mark says this, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. And this description seems to be de- derived from the description of Elijah found in 2 Kings 1.8. There, Elijah is also said to have a leather belt, but instead of being clothed with a camel's hair, Elijah is described as being a very hairy man. So it might be that instead of depicting John as hairy, the, new, <laughs> the Gospel of Mark depicts him with a hairy cloak, some, a camel hair uh, garment of some variety. In either case, uh, 
in the iconography of John throughout the history of the church, John is often depicted with long, straggly hair and a long, straggly beard. This likely then also goes back to this description of Elijah and the connection that we're talking about. In either case, uh, the, the connection between Elijah and John go beyond physical appearance. This connection is reinforced by certain Old Testament citations that connect Elijah and John. The most prominent one and the most well-known one comes from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, the text reads as follows. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is a classic Advent text and is read by churches around the world, typically on the second Sunday of Advent. We know it well. But upon a closer inspection, there are a few curious features about this citation in the Gospel of Mark. First, Mark says that this citation is from the prophet Isaiah. But actually, Mark is only partly correct. Part of this quote is in fact from the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, but the other is from the book of Malachi. The Isaiah portion uh, comes from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which reads, A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The other part comes from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and it reads, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. In Malachi, it is God himself who is speaking, thus the first person pronoun, me. But because Mark is quoting here from Malachi, he changes the me to a your. Later in Malachi, we learn that this messenger who is coming to prepare the way before the Lord is in fact Elijah. You can find this reference in Malachi 4, 5 and 6. But let me ask, did Mark make a mistake here? Didn't he say, after all, that this citation comes from the prophet Isaiah, when in fact uh, he has combined two verses together, one from Isaiah and one from Malachi? This is not likely the case. In antiquity, people would have had no problem with this sort of looser citation Method. In fact, it was very co- common in early Judaism uh, to splice together various different prophetic quotes um, and to join them together in one specific passage. So it, it's not that Mark has made a mistake, but rather we're seeing here a very old and very Jewish way of citing Scripture. Now, in either case, what's also interesting about this citation is what, does, what Mark does with the Isaiah 43 portion of it. What actually happens is that he repunctuates the original text from Isaiah 40, verse 3. In the book of Isaiah, it is clear that, it is in the, that the wilderness is the place where the preparations for the Lord are to be made. But for Mark, the wilderness is the place where the voice of, is the place of the voice crying out for those preparations. For Mark, this su- subtle shift makes sense. For, in fact, John the Baptist was doing his ministry out in the Judean. Now, 
Why make this connection to Elijah in the first place? Why not to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or some other Old Testament prophet? What was it about Elijah that led the New Testament authors to make the connection with John the Baptist? Well, I think it likely has to do with the end of Elijah's life, which is narrated in 2 Kings 2, verse 11. In this story, we see Elijah and his protege, Elisha, walking along. And all of a sudden, a chariot of fire appears and separates the two of them. And Elijah ascends in a whirlwind up to heaven. So according to 2 Kings 2, Elijah never dies, but is taken up bodily in heaven in a chariot of fire. This idea that Elijah never died, but was taken up to heaven in bodily form inspires later Old Testament authors and Jewish thinkers in the intertestamental period to begin to see the mysterious disappearance of Elijah as a sign that he would one day come back and play a unique role in God's future work in the world. Malachi 3, 23-24, for instance, sees him as a harbinger of the day of Elijah, and he would return to announce the beginning of that day. And in the New Testament, of course, he is understood to be coming back in the form of John the Baptist. At least that's how his fo- some of his followers saw him, as an Elijah-like figure, or even as Elijah returned to earth. Now let's turn to the question of John the Baptist's message and ministry. His basic message is well known and summarized in the beginning of Mark's gospel. He is said to have been proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Mark 1 verse 4. This essentially, in a nutshell, is a message of spiritual renewal. In the manner of an Old Testament prophetic tradition, John announces that judgment is imminent, but there is still hope for deliverance if people turn back to the Lord. Baptism, in this sense, is a symbol of their cleansing. It's a symbol of that turn back to God. Now, it should be noted here that John did not invent the idea of baptism, nor even the idea of ritual immersions. This practice was already common in the Judaism of its day. And in fact, from excavations around Qumran, we find that that ancient Jewish community had pools for ritual immersions that symbolized uh, a renewal or an establishment of a relationship between the person and with God. Now, in either case, we learned that people responded favorably to John's message. People from the whole Judean countryside and from Jerusalem came out into the Judean wilderness to follow John, and they were baptized in the River Jordan, and they confessed their sin. In a Protestant tradition, we might think of John then as a popular revivalist who was offering something like an altar call for people to come down to confess, to, uh, confess their sins and to renew their relationship with God. So the picture that emerges here is of John in a wilderness location, preaching a message of repentance and leading people into a revival in the manner of Old Testament prophets. This is the part of John's message that we probably in the church know the best. But John's message and ministry actually extends beyond this idea of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. His message is not just about popular revival. It also has a sharper anti-establishment edge to it from time to time. 
This is particularly clear in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 10. But when John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. For even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John here is essentially challenging the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would have represented the aristocracy of the Jewish establishment. They would have been the highest uh, spiritual figures in the Jewish community. And here John is confronting them head on. And in particular, he's questioning their claim to spiritual status based on their ancestry with Abraham. John makes his point with a very interesting play on words, a play on words that's lost to us in the Greek New Testament because it only works in John's uh, spoken language, which would have been Aramaic. In Aramaic, the word for children is banim, but the words for stone is stones is ebanim. So what John is saying then is that God is able to raise up from these ebanim, or stones, banim, or children. Matthew here retains the quote, but because he's using Greek, and the Greek words for stone and children sound nothing alike, the play on words is lost. But it would have been there in John's uh, spoken Aramaic, and the Pharisees would have, and Sadducees would have picked up on what John was saying. The picture that emerges here from Matthew 3, 7 through 10 is of, is of John as, uh, as, as representing a radicalized alternative movement to the Jewish temple aristocracy. It might even be the case that John was a former priest. After all, his dad Zechariah was a priest. And in this case, we might imagine that John had become disillusioned with the temple Uh, theology or aristocracy, or maybe even that he challenged them too sharply and was run off from the temple into the Judean wilderness. In either case, John certainly here represents an alternative theology and tradition from what was common among the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, there's probably a third element to John's message as well that we should note, and it's most prominent in the Gospel of Luke. Luke has the parallel passage that we just read from Matthew 3, 7 through 10, but then he adds an additional text right after it. We'll pick up with Luke 3, verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, John said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. So here we find John speaking to tax collectors and soldiers and other people of the wealthy elite. Here, his message is focused on economics. 
in fact, more so than conversion or baptism with the forgiveness of sins. John here is challenging the rich and powerful of his world, and it's a message consistent with the Gospel of Luke uh, in how Jesus comes to the least and to the last. It's also a message that's consistent with the tradition of Old Testament prophets, who are very concerned with the oppression of the poor and the widows and the orphans and the aliens at the hands of the rich and the privileged. Let's turn next to John's relationship with Jesus. Of course, we know that these two are, in fact, related biologically. They seem to be cousins, although in the New Testament, we don't know the exact dynamics of their relationships. But we do know that Mary and Elizabeth, their respective mothers, uh, were related. Now, in the history of Christian art, there's a wonderful tradition of painting John and Jesus together particularly as babies or as toddlers. And in these two paintings, because John and Jesus were born uh, only within six months apart from one another, they're often hard to tell apart, which is John, which is Jesus. Well, the one of the, in this iconographic tradition, the way to tell them apart is that John is often depicted holding a staff with a small portion of a, of a scroll wrapped around its base. And that scroll is inscribed with the, with the Latin words, Ecce Agnus Dei. Uh, Ecce Agnus Dei means, Behold the Lamb of God. And it echoes the words John says in 129, uh, excuse me, that John says in the Gospel of John 129, when he first sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, both birth stories of John and Jesus are told, and they're told in parallel with one another, uh, and they're arranged in a certain way to show a clear relationship between the two. In Luke 1, 5-25, we we hear the announcement of John's birth. This is followed immediately in John 1, 26-35, with the announcement of Jesus' birth. And then we have the two mothers meet. Mary and Elizabeth have that wonderful encounter together that ends with Mary singing the Magnificat. Then, right after this, Mary praises God uh, for, for Jesus. Uh, this is the Magnificat that I just mentioned. And then following this, Zechariah praises God for the birth of John. So here we have a nice envelope or circular structure where we have the announcement of John's birth followed by the announcement of Jesus' birth the meeting of the two mothers, Mary praising God for Jesus, and then Zechariah praising God for John. Beyond these parallels of their birth stories, the most common way of understanding the relationship of John and Jesus is to see John as a precursor to Jesus the Christ. Consider Luke 16.16. 16. It says, The law and the prophets were in effect until John came, Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is proclaimed, and everyone tries to enter it by force. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to be dropped. In Luke's estimation, John fits into a certain historical schema. He is a hinge between the law and the prophets of ancient Israel and the coming of the good news through Jesus Christ. He's a connector figure then, thus making him a central figure in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. John echoes a similar idea, though in a slightly different way. In John 1, verse 8, we hear, John himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. 
This text from John introduces an important theme. Though John is a precursor to Jesus, the Gospels are careful to show that John is less than Jesus. Mark 1.7 puts it this way, John proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here in this passage, we see John himself affirming that he is lesser than Jesus. This theme gets played out in several other gospel texts as well. But why is it important for the New Testament authors to emphasize that John is less than Jesus? Well, it likely reflects a scenario in where both John and Jesus had their own disciples. And so while there might not have been a rivalry between John and Jesus, there likely was a rivalry between their disciples. So here the New Testament authors are emphasizing that uh, John's disciples should become Jesus' disciples. That is to say, the followers of John and his baptism should understand that this was only a precursor or an initial step to becoming true disciples. Another important feature of John's story is his death. This death, uh, we know of this death uh, from two different versions, one from the Gospels and one from Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, which is a 20-book collection that surveys the history of the Jews from creation to the Jewish-Roman War from 66 to 70 CE. According to Josephus, John's death is politically motivated. Herod, in this story, uh, feared that John was drawing a large crowd to himself and that this crowd could be turned against the government and lead a popular uprising of some sort. So, as a type of preemptive strike, Herod orders that John the Baptist be imprisoned and then later killed. But the Gospels tell a slightly different story. And this story comes to us in Mark 6 and Matthew 14. In both accounts, we learn that John had been arrested and put in prison by Herod Antipas. Herod had uh, taken... Now, here's an interesting part of the Gospels that's not included in Josephus. Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife as his own wife. And apparently, John was critical of this immoral act and spoke out against it. While understandably, Herod's wife, Herodias, holds a grudge against John the Baptist. So, and and he would, and she would have had her husband kill him. But we learn that Herod feared John and was interested uh, in his message. And so he was fine to arrest him and imprison him, but he held off on killing him for the time. However, on the occasion of Herod's birthday, his wife, Herodias' daughter, danced before the Tetrarch. And the text tells us that Herod uh, was so pleased by the dancing of this unnamed daughter that he promised to give her whatever she would ask up to half of his kingdom. This sort of offer re- recalls the story of Esther and King Ahasuerus from the book of Esther, who offered uh, Esther up to half his kingdom. Well, in either case, Herodias goes to ask her, or Herodias's daughter goes to ask her mom for advice about what to ask for. And remember Herodias was holding this grudge against John the Baptist, and so she tells the daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod is grieved by this request, but he consents, and John the Baptist is beheaded, and the head is presented 
to the daughter. This scene has captured the imagination of readers of the Bible throughout the centuries. There are long artistic traditions of representing the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In fact, many of these scenes are quite uh, grisly in their nature. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, there's actually a feast day that remembers the beheading of John the Baptist. It's on August 29th. And even the Grand Mosque in Damascus claims to have the actual head of John the Baptist. Now, this is surely not the case, but there is this traditional fascination with how John's life comes to an end. There's also interest in the daughter who made the request to have John the Baptist's head brought out to her on a platter. In the New Testament, this daughter is not named, but in tradition, she comes to be called Salome, and this actually is already evident in the work of Josephus. In the New Testament, this daughter is only described as a young girl. The Greek word used here suggests that she might have even been, been 12 or 13, a very young age. But in art and in tradition, this woman who comes to be named Salome, Salome becomes a more active agent. She's typically a slightly older woman, maybe in her teens or early 20s. And uh, she actually tries, she doesn't just dance, but she actually tries to seduce John. And thus she becomes a symbol of the dangerous female seductress, or the femme fatale. She is the subject of much non-biblical writing. Uh, in the late 19th century, Oscar Wilde writes a play about Salome. And in, in Wilde's play, Salome uh, takes a perverse fancy for John the Baptist and causes him to be executed when John spurs her affections. In the final scene, Salome is presented with the head of John the Baptist on the, on the platter, and she actually kisses it. Wilde's play uh, is made into an opera uh, years later by Richard Strauss, and more recently there's an Al Pacino film called Salome, where Al Pacino plays Herod and Salome is played by Jessica Chastain, who might, you might know from her starring role in the 2012 film Zero Dark Thirty. Did all of this happen with Salome? Was she really uh, a seductress, someone who tried to tempt John the Baptist? This is not the story that the New Testament tells, but it is a story that has come to take an important place in the life of the church. The point, in either case, is that John the Baptist's ministry, his baptism, his proclamation of repentance, and his pointing toward the ministry of Christ would have put him in danger. So John, like Jesus, preached a message that eventually led to their death. And this is just another way in which John and Jesus come to be connected in the story of the New Testament.